Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 3, Episode 9, The Miracle of Dunbar. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Before we begin, I have to thank the new addition to the House of Lords, David Whitley, Earl of Mercia. Like all other patrons, he can now listen to this episode and every other episode ad-free. The new Earl of Mercia can also listen to the bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to find out more. Last week, we saw the short-lived royalist invasion of Scotland. Charles II, in exile, was trying to come to an agreement with the Scottish Covenanters to allow him to return to his ancestral kingdom without accepting all their terms. The Covenanters held the upper hand in these negotiations, and so the prince who would be king hoped to use military force to balance the deck. He unleashed the Marquis of Montrose, James Graham, who had a proven track record in defeating Covenanter armies. He also had a record of brutality, and during his earlier campaign, he had been condemned to death in absentia by the Covenanters. When he was captured after the disastrous Battle of Carbisdale, Montrose was quickly transferred to the custody of the Covenanter General, David Leslie, who, after a swift march north to deal with the small garrisons Montrose had left behind, began the journey back to Edinburgh. During this journey, Montrose was, quote, consciously theatrical, according to one biographer. He knew he was a dead man, and he wanted his legacy to live on. When crowds gathered to meet him, he aimed to appear unbroken and resolute. Leslie marched his prisoners all the way to Dundee, where they were put on a boat and sailed across the Forth to Leith. Montrose was soon met by Edinburgh's magistrates, the city guards, and, of course, the hangman. Once news had reached Edinburgh of Montrose's capture, a committee had quickly assembled to assess his fate. He was now told that he was to be tied to a cart, bareheaded, and taken up the Royal Mile, with the hangman riding the horse. Montrose, still thinking of his reputation, stoically accepted this fate, although he lamented that it would bring shame to his king. The Edinburgh crowd watched with a fair amount of sympathy for Montrose, and when a noblewoman heckled Montrose as he passed her house, 
the crowd turned on her and heckled her in return. Montrose was imprisoned in the tollbooth. During Montrose's short stay, Kirk ministers visited him daily, accusing him of various crimes and sins, most of which Montrose countered. He told them that he loved Presbyterianism and had no love for the bishops, but if his only way to save his life, or at least be reconciled with the Kirk, was to, quote, call that my sin, which I account to have been my duty, he would not do it. Montrose was then taken to Parliament House, where the charges were read out against him. Again, Montrose denied them, and he justified his latest expedition to Scotland as an attempt to, quote, accelerate the treaty between Charles II and Edinburgh. But everyone in that room knew that Montrose was doomed. This was not a trial, this was sentencing. Johnston of Warriston then read the sentence. Death, of course, but what may have surprised Montrose was the manner of his execution. He was to be hanged, like a common criminal, like a common traitor. He was a nobleman of the highest rank, and one of the perks of his position was that he could expect a swift, relatively painless and honourable death by beheading. The next day, the scaffold had been built and Montrose prepared to die. Again, with an eye on his legacy, he gave his appearance serious attention. He brushed his long hair, telling his jailers, My head is still my own. I will arrange it to my taste. Tonight, when it is yours, treat it as you please. He wore fine scarlet and silver clothes, complete with ruffs and stockings of silk, with ribbons adorning his shoes. No one was going to mistake him for a common criminal. At one point during the day, Edinburgh's garrison stirred to life in a panic, apparently at the rumour that there was a plot to free Montrose. When he was told this, he laughed, quote, What, am I still a terror to them? Let them look to themselves. My ghost will haunt them, end quote. Montrose made the short walk to the scaffold. He didn't give a speech, but in his final words he gave himself to God, forgave his enemies, and said that he would have gladly given his life if it had saved Charles I. His arms were tied, and he climbed the ladder to the noose. A signal was given, and Montrose was pushed off the edge. Montrose's body was cut down after three hours, and then quartered. His head was placed on a spike in Edinburgh, and the rest of his body was dispersed across Scotland to Glasgow, Perth, Stirling, and Aberdeen. The role of Charles II in Montrose's death is difficult to establish for certain. We can assume that once he was captured, Charles had accepted that Montrose was a dead man. Whether he could have saved him or not, he doesn't seem too hard to have tried. The Covenanters had finally agreed the terms of a deal with Charles on the 1st of May, more on that shortly, and they were clearly not worried that killing Montrose would make the king break off negotiations. It's sometimes said that Charles sent Montrose to Scotland, intending him to die, almost as a peace offering to the Covenanters. But I'm not convinced that Charles was that ruthless. He was ruthless enough to abandon him to his fate in order to get his crown back, though, and on the Restoration, Charles will try to clear his conscience. But I mentioned a deal. Charles had continued his negotiations with the Covenanter representatives after Montrose had sailed away. One contemporary colourfully described how the two sides dealt with each other, quote, See how they endeavour to cheat and cousin each other? The king strokes them till he can get into the saddle, 
and then he will make them feel his spurs for all their old jade's tricks they have played his father. And they know it, and therefore will not agree that he shall mount them with his heels armed. Montrose's invasion had been meant to force the Covenanters to dial back some of their terms. Instead, his rapid defeat completely undermined Charles's negotiating position. The agreement made on the 1st of May 1650 was almost identical to the terms originally demanded. Charles agreed to swear the Covenants, denounce the Ormond Treaty and his support for Irish Catholics, abandon any concessions towards religious toleration, accept Covenanter, Kirk Party, choices of councillors, and to abandon those they deemed inappropriate. Montrose was at the top of that list, of course. These terms were agreed in principle, but for the next few weeks, Charles continued to haggle, before eventually capitulating. Charles hated these terms, he really did, but his choice of options had vanished. Ireland was now a lost cause. Cromwell was in the middle of the siege of Clonmel, and the position of Irish royalists was not getting better. Montrose's army was also a lost cause, although it's debated how up-to-date Charles's information was. By the time he arrived in Scotland, Montrose had been dead for weeks, and so the path was, from a cynical point of view, now cleared. Because arrive in Scotland, he did. On the 23rd of June, while anchored off the Scottish coast, he signed the Treaty of Breda, and the next day he was allowed to land. He was greeted by cheering crowds, bonfires, partying, dancing, and excitement. And this terrified the Kirk party, and not just because they hated sinful parties. They saw this welcome not merely as Scots glad to see their king, a Stuart king, no less, but because they knew Charles was no lover of the Treaty of Breda. He hadn't been subtle. The Kirk party was unpopular, and Charles was clearly very popular. What if he used his popularity to, I don't know, ignore the terms he had just agreed and assert his royal authority? What if he sparked a popular uprising which turfed Argyll and the Kirk party out of power? The Kirk party attempted to keep their king on a short lead. Key royalists were removed from his presence, including the new Duke of Hamilton, whose brother had been executed shortly after the regicide. Charles was also forbidden to go anywhere near the army, in case he turned the soldiers against the government. Nevertheless, by August, he had been invited to visit the army at Leith, and he'd been welcomed with open arms. This naturally led the Committee of Estates ordering Charles to get away from them, because to quote Gentle's nice turn of phrase, he was competing with God for popularity. Once Charles landed in Scotland, the kingdom shifted to a war footing, because everyone understood that conflict between Republican England and Stuart Scotland was now unavoidable. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the temple of the feathered serpent under Teotihuacan. 
We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now and can you guess the twist? Oliver Cromwell left Ireland in May 1650, and when he returned to London, he was also greeted by cheering crowds. To the London people, he was the conquering hero, who had crushed the Irish rebels and avenged the massacres of 1641. More than that, he had arrived to protect England from the perfidious Scots, who even now were plotting to invade with the young Charles II at their head. This is the moment where Cromwell supplants his friend and superior officer and takes another step towards rule. Towards the end of June, with England and Scotland clearly on the brink of war, the Rump Parliament ordered Fairfax and Cromwell to invade Scotland. A preemptive strike to keep the fighting off English soil and to nip this in the bud right here and now. Fairfax initially agreed to do so, but over the next two weeks, his position changed, apparently due to the advice of his wife as well as Presbyterian ministers. He would serve to defend England from invasion, but he would not condone a preemptive strike. The Council of State arranged a meeting on the 25th of June between Fairfax and Cromwell, Bulstrode Whitelock, John Lambert, Thomas Harrison and Oliver St. John. Basically, many of Fairfax's oldest comrades and political supporters to work out why on earth he was refusing to do his duty. Fairfax's position was that, firstly, the English and Scottish Parliament were allies. They had sworn the Solemn League and Covenant. Secondly, he didn't believe the Scots had yet done enough to warrant an invasion. In his own words, recorded in the minutes of the meeting, quote, My lords, you will give me leave then, with all the freeness to say to you, that I think it doubtful which we have a just cause to make an invasion upon Scotland, with whom we are in the National League and Covenant. And now for us, contrary thereunto and without sufficient cause given us by them, to enter in their country with an army and make war upon them, is that which I cannot see the justice of it, nor how we shall be able to justify the lawfulness of it before God or men. Cromwell countered that, for starters, the Scots had already broken the Solemn League and Covenant when the Engagers invaded England. The only reason the current regime was in power in Edinburgh was because Cromwell himself had put it there, and that regime, under the Marquis of Argyll, had now come to an agreement with Charles II. 
which led into his second point. There was a very good reason to suspect the Scots were about to invade again. Cromwell was not the kind of person to let his opponents seize the initiative. The others agreed with Cromwell's points, and begged Fairfax to reconsider. He was the Lord General, beloved by his men and respected by his enemies. This was his duty. That's a point they repeatedly insist on. But Fairfax would not be moved. Maybe he had been truly convinced by the arguments of his wife and Presbyterian ministers. Maybe these were just useful excuses, and Fairfax, who had never been fully comfortable with the radicalism which had purged Parliament, put the king on trial, and instituted a republic, decided that this was his stop, and he was getting off. Whatever his reasons, Fairfax would not be moved. He resigned his commission, citing his health, and the next day, Parliament repealed the Ordinance and Act of February 1645. This had formed the New Model Army, and had appointed Fairfax as its Captain-General and Parliament's Commander-in-Chief. This ordinance had, in many ways, won Parliament the Civil War. Now it was repealed, and on the same day another Act was passed, the Act for Ordaining and Appointing Oliver Cromwell Esquire, Captain-General and Commander-in-Chief of all the forces raised and to be raised within the Commonwealth of England. Fairfax was given the thanks of the nation, and he retired to his native Yorkshire, where he sat out the politics of the Protectorate, writing bad poetry, until he returned to the saddle as the Protectorate collapsed. But that's for another time. Cromwell, now in command, set to work. He mobilised more than 16,000 men, and spent days fasting and praying with his officers. Like with Ireland, he placed logistics at the top of his priorities, and he made sure to secure the supplies and the pay which his army would need. Horses were particularly sought after, and in the markets of both England and Scotland, war horses were flying off the shelves, destined for the English army. He also started to widen the cracks within the Scottish political nation. He proclaimed that the Scots had nothing to fear from the English, and he emphasised the spiritual brotherhood between the Covenanters and the English, although he urged them to consider greater freedom of conscience for differing Protestant faiths. He also pointed out the hypocrisy of making a deal with a king who clearly had no intention of sincerely keeping to the covenants. In contrast, when Charles landed in Scotland, the Scottish army numbered all of 2,500 cavalry and 3,000 infantry. It was barely enough to maintain domestic security. With war rapidly approaching, the Committee of Estates put David Leslie to work. The borders between Edinburgh and the River Tweed were stripped of food and supplies. Many of the civilian population were urged to head north. A line of fortifications between Edinburgh and Leith became the base for his army, which rapidly swelled to 20,000 over the summer. This was especially impressive because he did so even with the ideological purges carried out by the Committee of Estates. The Kirk Party firmly believed that a small, motivated, religiously pure army could defeat any opponent, because God would be on their side. This led to 80 officers being expelled from Leslie's ranks, along with 4,000 soldiers, because they were deemed unworthy for one reason or another. This might seem like a bad idea, turning away a large chunk of your army on the eve of an invasion, but Gentles and Reed, among others, note that the Covenanters had recent examples of tight-knit, 
well-disciplined and motivated forces defeating opponents who outnumbered them many times over. Carbisdale was the most recent example. The new model army was in many ways the result of this thinking, and it had won many battles while outnumbered. But as in Ireland, the unity of the Scottish side was far from concrete. Because as much as Charles hated the terms of the Treaty of Breda, there were covenanters who were appalled that Scotland was once again going to war against their spiritual brothers on behalf of a king whose allegiance to the true church was not sincere. In an echo of the Engager recruitment drive, regions of strong covenanter sentiment, like Ayrshire, were poor recruiting grounds for the new army. There were also those within the government, both civilian and military, who saw Charles II as their true enemy, not the Calvinist Cromwell. The Committee of Estates tried to square this circle in August, by reminding everyone of their deal with Charles. In August, a declaration was placed before the young king for his signature. This document expressed clearly and undeniably that he was committed to the National Covenant and the Solemn League and Covenant, that he disavowed and denounced the Second Ormond Treaty, and that he was ashamed by the crimes of his father and the popery of his mother. Charles, of course, balked at this and refused to sign it, but the pressure mounted, and he once again gave in, signing it on the 16th of August. This is the document which sounded the death knell of Ormond's government in Ireland. All of this was taking place against the backdrop of the English invasion, because Cromwell was not one to sit around. On the 22nd of July, Less than a month after Fairfax resigned and Cromwell was made commander-in-chief, he crossed the border at Berwick with 16,000 men, shadowed by the English fleet off the coast carrying supplies and siege artillery. Leslie's strategy to deal with Cromwell was similar to Ormond's in Ireland. As mentioned, he evacuated people, supplies and livestock in the expected path of the English army, and burnt the rest. The crops, I mean, not the people who stayed behind, Leslie's forces gathered at the Leaf Line, about 50 miles from Berwick, which forced Cromwell to stretch his supply and communication lines. With his forces outnumbering Cromwell's, he was content to wait and let attrition take its toll. Cromwell marched north and reached Dunbar four days after crossing the border. He then captured Haddington and Musselburgh and reached Leslie's lines at Leith on the 29th of July. He sent word to the fleet to bombard the port while he scouted out his enemy's position. He didn't like what he saw. He could see that Leslie outnumbered him, with well-fortified positions bookended by the Firth of Forth and Edinburgh Castle. Even Arthur's seat was garrisoned. To bypass these defences, he'd need to march far to the west, through the Pentland Hills, away from his naval support and leaving his supply lines open to easy attack. When Cromwell tried to do this, Leslie was waiting for him on a key strategic hill. The terrain prevented Cromwell from initiating a battle, and he was forced to withdraw back the way he came on the 20th of August. All this time, he was losing men from disease, desertion, and Leslie's raids. Throughout this month of military stagnation, Cromwell tried to win the Battle of Hearts and Minds. He wrote to the General Assembly of the Kirk, urging them to see sense. Charles obviously couldn't be trusted, and their alliance with him was, quote, a covenant made with death and hell, end quote. 
If they would just relax their strict demands for Presbyterian conformity, there would be no conflict between England and Scotland. All this time, Leslie's plan was bearing fruit. Despite the fleet, supplies were regularly delayed, convoys were harassed, and the Scottish weather was taking its toll. Morale was collapsing as disease ripped through the English ranks. By the end of August, Cromwell was down to 11,000 men, from the 16,000 who had crossed the border with him. Despite trying to tempt Leslie out from his defences, the Scottish general had not taken the bait. The weather was only going to get worse, Leslie was only going to get stronger. On the 31st, Cromwell gave the order to withdraw from the area around Leith, and he moved his army to Dunbar. The sick and wounded were loaded onto a fleet to be taken home, and he prepared to march the rest of his army back to Berwick. The invasion of Scotland had failed. Leslie was by far the best commander Cromwell had ever faced, and it appeared that for the first time, Cromwell had been outdone. All this time, Cromwell had been trying to entice Leslie into battle. When he crossed the border, the new model army was experienced and well-disciplined, and the Scottish army was neither. But now, as Cromwell tried to go home, Leslie emerged from his defences. He now led not a ragtag group of conscripted levies, but a force which had been drilled and trained, purged of the impure, and with experience from raids and skirmishes. With Cromwell clearly on the back foot, his army weakened, low on morale, and trying to get home, Leslie seized the opportunity. He followed the English army as it fell back to Dunbar, and quickly secured the strategically valuable Dune Hill. From here, Leslie could see the Great North Road, and threatened Dunbar and Cromwell's camp. He also sent a force south, cutting off the land road. The new model army was trapped, and in a rare moment, Cromwell had no idea what to do. The traditional account of what follows is this. Luckily for Cromwell, Leslie now made a grave mistake. From his vantage point, he saw hundreds of English soldiers board the fleet, and believed this showed a frantic evacuation. He gave in to the urging of Kirk ministers and civilians in his command tent, and on the 2nd of September, he moved his army off Dune Hill and put them in position along Brock's Burn, a large stream, and settled down for the night. It was going to be a stormy one, and at first light, they would advance on whatever English forces were still on land. There were two major problems with this plan. The first was that Leslie had seen the injured and sick boarding the ships, but Cromwell hadn't ordered a general evacuation. Most of his army was staying on land to march south. And the second was that Leslie began his manoeuvring during daylight, and just as he could see what was happening in Dunbar from his position on Dunes Hill, Cromwell could see what was happening up on Dunes Hill. So he knew what Leslie was doing, and both he and John Lambert agreed that the Covenanter had put his army in a terrible position. Because of the terrain, if Leslie's army was attacked, his movement would be restricted by the burn and the heights. The Scots settled in for a relaxing night. The English were clearly evacuating, and so Scottish officers found farmhouses and stables to shelter from the weather. Many rank-and-file soldiers found shelter in the fields, under crops and trees, and musketeers put their matches out. All the while, with their movements muffled by the storm, the English army repositioned to attack the Scottish right, and by 4am they were almost ready. 
That was when a Scottish sentry finally noticed their movement in the half-light and sounded the alarm. The reaction of the Scottish army was slowed by the fact that most of the Scottish officers were away from their posts. John Lambert led a vanguard of cavalry and infantry right into the Scottish right, the Scottish picket was quickly destroyed, and the advance carried on into the Scottish right. Meanwhile, Leslie's centre and left were confronted with artillery fire and the harassment of Colonel Oakey's dragoons, who kept them occupied. Only a few regiments were able to assist the right wing. The rest were hampered by the terrain and enemy action. When the sun rose at about 6am, Cromwell shouted, Now let God arise, and his enemies shall be scattered. Panic spread through the Scottish army. Hemmed in by terrain, and either pinned down by artillery or dragoons, or outnumbered on the right, morale began to waver. Cromwell ordered the rest of his army forward, and sent his cavalry reserve across the burn, to loop around and smash into their flank and rear. When this cavalry force made itself known, Leslie's right wing collapsed. By 7am, the main action was finished. Panic spread like wildfire, and Scottish infantry threw down their weapons and surrendered or tried to flee. Many were killed in the rout by English cavalry, and many more were captured. That is the traditional story. That Leslie was convinced by overzealous ministers to strike a dramatic blow rather than a safer siege, and so he gave up an impregnable position, and that Cromwell saw this mistake and decided to strike hard and put his faith in God and the discipline of his army. This view is no longer uncontested. One alternative view is argued by Stuart Reid. This argues that Leslie wasn't planning to attack the English army. Instead, he'd repositioned in order to better block the road south. Dune Hill, while impregnable, was only a military asset if Cromwell was stupid enough to attack it. Without artillery, Leslie couldn't deny Cromwell's retreat south from his position on the hill. His position along the burn wasn't great, and he quickly realised this and tried to fix it, but the bad weather and nightfall got in the way. Reed also argues that Cromwell intended to break through Leslie's blockade of the road, not fight a pitched battle. Destroying the Scottish right was intended, in this view, to clear the path for a withdrawal south. It was only after the Scottish cavalry were routed that Cromwell decided to aim higher and to defeat the entire Scottish army. The total casualties are also disputed. Cromwell reported 4,000 killed and 10,000 captured, and that he released 5,000 of his prisoners. Lipscomb repeats those high numbers, but many historians are sceptical and believe the actual number was much lower, since it's unlikely that Leslie led that many men in the first place. Gentles puts it at 3,000 killed, and more conservative estimates put the death toll at under 1,000, with 5,000 captured, and the rest scattering. Many of those captured were taken south, and held in Durham Cathedral, where, in 2013, a mass grave was found. They had survived Dunbar, but the harsh winter and poor treatment meant that almost 2,000 of them would die in captivity. Regardless of the exact numbers, the Battle of Dunbar was an incredible victory for Cromwell, and a devastating one for Leslie. He didn't have enough men to man the Leaf defensive line, and he was forced to abandon Edinburgh. The General Assembly of the Kirk and the Committee of Estates had no choice but to follow him. Stirling became the new home of the Scottish government, and political infighting began immediately. Someone had to be responsible for the disaster of Dunbar, 
and everyone knew who that was. The problem was, they disagreed on who exactly that was. Next time, Cromwell will continue his advance into Scotland, as the Covenanters split once again. Meanwhile, Charles II asserts his own authority, and becomes a player in his own right. Thank you to my House of Lords, including but not limited to the King's favourite Mike Sanders, the Duke of Ormond, Brendan Bonner, the Marquess of Queensbury, Brent Sitz, and the Earl of Waterford, Dylan Drollette. Go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to join their ranks and listen to the podcast without ads. Remember that you can join the mailing list to get news about the show by going to the link in the description. The Intelligent Speech Conference is on the 4th of November. The hosts of both History on Fire and Our Fake History are among the keynotes, and there's loads of other panels and talks from lots of brilliant podcasters. Go to intelligentspeechonline.com to find out more. For other great podcasts on the Airwave Network, check out airwavemedia.com. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. <laughs>